ranga te rama, nau mai ki te pai o te waonui, tēnā koutou katoa, ko Jamie Tahana ahau. You're listening to Te Waonui, a wrap of the week's Māori news here on RNZ National. This week, we're at the latest round of Kura Kaupapa hearings. We check in on Wairoa, three months on from Cyclone Gabrielle, and the countdown to Matariki starts in Takapo. But first, let's canvas a dramatic week in Te Whare Parimata. Nationals leader Christopher Luxon has unequivocally ruled out working with Te Pāti Māori to form a government after the election. It follows a turbulent period for parties on the left, with Mika Whaitiri defecting from Labour and pledging allegiance instead to Te Pāti Māori. Here's Deputy Political Editor Craig McCulloch. He once called it a parlour game of rule in, rule out. Now Christopher Luxon is very much playing. Today I've ruled out National coming to any arrangement with Te Pāti Māori and forming a government after this year's election. National's taken a while to get here. For months Mr Luxon has danced around the point, saying only that such a deal was highly unlikely. Today came a captain's call, a decision he personally made in the past 24 hours. No way, no how. I want to be really clear that I'm ruling them out hard. The declaration comes a day after Te Pāti Māori's co-leaders were turfed from the debating chamber for breaking the rules, conducting an unsanctioned poverty to welcome Labour defector Mika Whaitiri. What I'm seeing in New Zealand is an absolute coalition of chaos. I'm seeing a government literally fall apart. Well, it's a great day for Tiwi Māori, let me put it that way. What he's done is confirmed that he's not interested in creating a tiriti-centric Aotearoa. For Rawiri Waititi of Te Pāti Māori, the announcement is hardly a surprise. The party's current iteration is far different from in 2008, when it supported National under John Key. It was already near unthinkable the two parties could work together, given their vastly different positions on Tetariti. We have a Māori party that is pursuing a separatist and more radical agenda. We believe in one person, one vote. We believe that we are all equal citizens and equal under the law. It's dog whistling because you don't get, it's not one person, one vote, it's one person, two votes. Maybe somebody should give civics education to Chris Luxon and his mates. Kia ora And Labour and the Greens were more than happy to offer that lesson. He knows what he's saying. It's intentional. It's lazy and chaotic. The Māori electorates uh, do operate on the principle of one person, one vote. Um, and I think those who suggest otherwise need to really consider what the message is that they're trying to convey. The chief message National is trying to convey is that the left are a mess and that their three-headed coalition would be a disaster. Today's declaration allows it to double down on that attack. That is a very unstable coalition of chaos, as I keep saying. But current polling predicts a razor-sharp election. A survey out today conducted by Curia gives National and Act 62 MPs between them enough to form a government, but only just. Other recent polls suggest they'd need other friends to get over the line. Perhaps New Zealand First. New Zealand First isn't in Parliament, uh, and we'll talk about that another day. Look, I'm not talking about what the Labour Party or National Party or any other party's doing, just what my party's doing at the moment. But New Zealand First is still a long way from the 5% threshold required. Today's result has them on just 2.6. And any coalition involving ACT with New Zealand First could pose its own problems. The two parties' leaders, David Seymour and Winston Peters, are not exactly friendly. You know, he's fallen out with three prime ministers, got voted out of three electorates, and you want me to make him functional and competent? I mean, who do you think I am, Jesus? The Ag Party has never, ever had a minister inside a cabinet in all of those 30 years. This is rather dramatic. One thing is true, however, and that's that politicians love power. Forget the rule-in, rule-out game. Once the votes are cast, expect every party to explore 
every possibility to secure government. Meanwhile, Te Pāti Māori was on the attack in Parliament after both major parties refused to support its proposed ban on seabed mining. The party's co-leader, Debbie Ngārewa Packer, condemned both sides of the House when the bill was voted down at first reading. She told Morning Report's Corin Dan why she called Labour amateurs and hypocrites over seabed mining. This is like a kaupapa that's been... Um at the heart of us in, in Taranaki and Te for 12 plus years. And I think, you know, when you're standing there with um, two big parties that are, are really unclear even what the resource is and, and, and how it applies under the law, you've got a gallery full of people that actually know more than the politicians that are debating it. It, it becomes really insulting to our intelligence. So, yeah, and I, I think I, I probably didn't realise how... Um, poorly briefed and inexperienced they were until I was listening to the angles of debate. Because remember, this is the very first time that seabed mining um, debate has happened in the House. So mm. it was really revealing, okay. <laughs> disturbingly well, so. The biggest <laughs> complaint seems to be with the bill from David Parker, the Environment Minister, was that there was a danger, that it wasn't clear in the drafting of the legislation that it would not also... Um, you know, put the Maui gas field in jeopardy. And that obviously is a, is a gas supply that the country, whether you like it or not, still needs. Yeah, I, I think, um, to be honest, I think that was a red herring and that was um, deliberately uh, you know, confusing the, the actual aspect, the issue that was being discussed. I mean, first of all, if that's a real concern and you had the opportunity in select committee and through SOPS to be able to change that detail... But the second thing is that it became really frustrating is what I realised is that they don't actually even get the sector that they're trying to protect are some of those strongest in the 13,000 submissions that are opposing this activity. So it just reeked of real inexperience. And I think the frustration for us as Taranaki is that we consistently see bureaucrats and politicians debate about us without us and clearly inexperienced. I mean, when I heard seabed mining being called fossil fuels, and then there was another party that talked about property rights. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, they actually don't know. And I think that that really, mm. well, really shocked me. That's Te Pāti Māori's Debingarewa Meanwhile, an East Coast leader says a damning report into the impact of slash and sediment there has highlighted urgent local problems. A government-commissioned inquiry is calling for large-scale felling of plantation forests in Tairawhiti and Wairoa to be restricted. Manu Kedi organised a petition demanding an investigation into land use in Tairawhiti in the wake of Cyclone Gabrielle. He says the report gives the East Coast the attention it deserves. These are really urgent issues from a local perspective, but we're a very small part of the national population, um, fairly poor and um, a long way from the centres of power and often feel like um, the region and particularly the rural parts get overlooked. Manu Kari says it's critical the government supports East Coast communities if foresters and farmers leave the region. The second round of Waitangi Tribunal hearings brought by Kura Kaupapa were held in Wellington this week. Pōkere Paiwai was at Te Kura Kaupapa Māori o Ngā Mukapuna. 
On Monday, the tribunal was welcomed onto Te Kurakaupapa Māori o Ngā Mukupuna in Situn. Much of the hearing is being heard in Te Reo Māori, and this will be the tribunal's first report written mostly in Te Reo. The claim is about who has the authority over how Te Reo is taught and learned. Te Runanganui o Ngā Kurakaupapa Māori o Aotearoa, which oversees Kurakaupapa Māori, is seeking the Waitangi Tribunal's intervention to ensure that Kura can continue to express their tinoranga tiratanga. Co-chair of Te Runanganui, Kathy Jews, tells the Tribunal that Kura Kaupapa will continue to be suppressed if they are forced to rely upon the Crown's plan to revitalise the language. Kia whirinaki ai mātou ki a rātou rautaki whakarauora reo mā ngā tamariki Māori me a rātou whāinga mō tō mātou kaupapa kātahi mātou kā ngaro. Ka rite ki te mako e kaiana i te kahawai. She compares the Crown and the Ministry of Education to sharks, which would devour the Māori kahawai. In 2019, a report from the Tomorrow's Schools Task Force recommended that an autonomous governance body be formed to support Kurakaupapa Māori. The government did not adopt that recommendation. Chief Executive of Te Runanganui, Hohepa Campbell, says they told the government about their concerns over the lack of a parallel pathway for Kaupapa Māori schools. He says that, combined with the lack of any active protections for kura, led the runanga to file their claim. The t- changes today by the ministry will impact severely on our kaupapa for the next 30 years unless autonomy is devolved to our whānau kura kaupapa Māori. Kaihono for te runanganui, Mahinarangi Maika, says the government's reforms will result in assimilation. The Tomorrow School... School's review was a lost opportunity for the Crown to honour its treaty obligations in partnership with Kura Kaupapa Māori and Te Runanganui. As of March 2022, there were 6,773 students spread out over 62 official Kura Kaupapa across the motu. That's only a small fraction of all Māori children who are in education. Economist Dr Richard Mead says the government should look beyond simply population growth and demographic changes when it considers funding for kurakaupapa Māori. He told the tribunal that parents value kurakaupapa in spite of negatives like high travel costs. It turns out parents seem to think that kura are different to other Māori medium schools. They value kura more highly on average than they do other Māori medium schools, in each case relative to English medium. Um, And this is over and above... All these other differences I've controlled for, role size, decile, isolation, etc. The Crown will present its case to the Tribunal at the next set of hearings in two weeks' time. You're listening to Te Waunui, a wrap of the week from our Māori news team here on RNZ National. Ko Jamie Tahana tēnei. It's been three months since the Wairua River burst its banks, the morning after the downpour caused by Cyclone Gabrielle. Hundreds of homes remain damp and dirty, families are still displaced, and winter is fast approaching.
Kate Green visited the town. Denise Eaglesome Karikare still has a thick layer of silt under her home on Waiheriri Road. And it's proving to be the ultimate sticking point because the moisture level in her house is too high. I'm not allowed to actually engage anyone to do any work until I have a reading of 16% and under. While the salt is sitting under your home, it's keeping your home damp. She wants to get cracking and hire someone to clear the silt, but is waiting for her insurance company to tell her how much it's willing to pay. She doesn't want to be caught out by spending too much, and it's frustrating because she has a builder ready to go. If I don't hurry up and get them to approve my scope of work, so I'm going to lose my builder, and they're like hen's teeth and wire. He is being approached continuously by people who need him to do their houses, but because I know him, he's, he's waiting. So I've basically got a week to let him know. In some cases, people who aren't insured have come out better off. Uninsured residents in the next street over say their own home has been silt-free for weeks after community volunteers got stuck in, and moisture levels are already back within healthy limits. Nearby lives a young couple, Maui and Camellia, who are also uninsured. Maui's lived in this house his whole life. In the shed, they're up to their elbows in damaged belongings, and they've both left their jobs at the meatworks to sort it all out. The recovery is the hardest thing, like recovering from the tragedy and from the aftermath of what it done to us. That's going to be hardest for me. As we stand in their driveway chatting, part of the shed wall crashes to the ground. Benita Tahiri, the town's newly appointed recovery manager, says she's worried Wairoa will slip quietly out of the headlines. And I believe we haven't even come to the worst of it, that we're still on the downward trend and we're coming into winter so we can feel the anxiety of the families now starting to say, I'm not waiting for insurance, I can't wait for the insurance, I need to do it myself. She fears people will end up badly out of pocket, or worse, living in damp, unhealthy homes come winter. In the past few weeks, funding has started to roll into Hawke's Bay, but Mayor Craig Little says Wairoa has barely seen any of it. Some magnificent funding comes in and we get a little bit out the bottom. We're saying give us, a, not per population, because the whole of the population of Hawke's Bay didn't get affected, put it, the, the affected properties and give us our share. He says the town got only $30,000 from the almost $1 million raised by staff, and it hasn't seen any of the lotto money yet either. Last week, the government announced more than $130 million to help Hawke's Bay remove silt. But the Wairoa Council has already removed a huge amount of sediment in an attempt to get uninsured people back into their homes. Craig Little isn't sure the council will be compensated. To make matters worse, he says there's still no clear picture of why some parts of the town were flooded and others were not. He says the town can't decide where it's safe to rebuild until that's sorted out. Two new reports have shown what Fano water providers say is the positive effect their Fano-centred approach has on reducing child poverty. Ngātini Fitu is a $42 million prototype supporting 800 Fano, trying to improve the safety and well-being of Tamariki, especially in their early life. Fano water minister Pini Hinare said the reports are validation for the work of Fano order. These reports will show the how. Uh, with a whānau-centred approach, we can uh, often uh, curb or, or even stop in many instances some of the bad things that happen to whānau. 
um, and caring for their tamariki, and that's why I'm probably the most excited about it. Penny Hinare says he'd like to see more support for whānau-centred initiatives from other agencies because, he says, devolution brings benefits. What this report will show is that actually when agencies, Crown agencies, work together and in some cases relinquish uh, authority and they allow community and whānau to meet their aspirations and to halt the pathway for tamariki and to stay here, then we can achieve wonderful things. The chair of the Final Order Commissioning Agency, Miripekaro Kawatate, spoke with Pokere Paiwai. Now, Fano Order has always put the Fano in the centre. We are by Māori for Māori, so we do see things differently. So when a government agency works with us, they have to know um, that they will also have to change their approach. And I have to say that the organisations, government agencies that we've worked collaboratively uh, in the Ngātini uh, Whetu um, approach, um, they have been prepared to do that. And I think that's where we've seen some really magic, uh, magic outcomes and great things have been happening. Do you see this as an example of how some co-governance type arrangements can bring benefits to Māori communities and whānau? Yes, absolutely, because this is really another form of, of people working collaboratively. Whether you call it co-governance, whether you call it, um, you know, different partnerships, it's really about the opportunity for systems change to occur. Because if we continue to use the same old systems, you know, make some um, tweak, do a tweak here and a tweak there, then you won't have the enduring change that we required. That's Fano Order Commissioning Agency Chair Miripeka Rokawa Tate. The path towards the rising of Matariki has been laid at an event in Takapo, or Lake Tikapo, on Thursday. A booklet containing karakia for each of the nine stars of Matariki was launched at the event. It'll be distributed to schools and communities across Aotearoa. Pōkere Paiwai asked Professor Rangianehu Matāmoa what inspired the booklet. I suppose it comes out of the launch that happened last year with the inaugural Matariki holiday where we did it with a very elaborate and full um, um, ceremony that took place at Te Papa. And a uh, number of people uh, in, their, in their homes and in the communities asked how they could also partake or run their own ceremony or have their own celebration uh, using, I guess, the template that is the uh, much larger and more elaborate ceremony. So I put together a little booklet with just some basic instructions, uh, some basic karakia, very simple. Um, they can be read in either Māori or English because they're in both languages with some instructions of um, what to do and when to do it if people are interested. And that's what we're launching today. It's really for people that are wanting to something a little bit special and, and uh, uh, kind of find a, a, perhaps a more authentic or um, traditionally um, based way of celebrating Matariki, uh, we've got this resource that we're hoping to share with people. Mm, yeah, is that something you see being a big theme of this year's Matariki celebrations, you know, going back to your whānau and maybe reigniting some uh, Matariki ceremonies? I I do. I think that uh, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of um, celebrations and ceremonies that took place last year. Uh, This is just one way of of letting people know that you don't have to have um, 
20 tohunga or, or experts and, um, you know, uh, 35 minutes of, of karakia. While that's really one way of doing it in a very official, um, formal way, uh, this is another way that utilises the same processes, I guess, but in a more um, meaningful and more intimate way. And um, we're hoping that people who are interested are able to pick it up and, and do it within their homes and and within, you know, just come together as whānau and celebrate it and, and use this as perhaps a platform to to facilitate the, the ceremony and the celebrations that they have at home. Are there any challenges you see ahead heading into the second uh, Matariki public holiday? Uh, one of the things we really uh, are hoping to do is to embed the main themes of Matariki, which are to, you know, remember those who have passed since the last rising of Matariki, um, celebrating uh, who we are with food and coming together and merriment and festivities. And the third thing is to um, look to the future and plan for the year ahead. And so we're hoping to, uh, the challenge really is to embed those major themes within the, um, uh, the, the, the the holiday and also really to encourage people to get out and celebrate, celebrate our environment, celebrate who we are, celebrate the uniqueness of this holiday. Only here in this part of the world is Matariki celebrated the way that it's celebrated. And it's uh, something that is special to who we are as a nation and trying to really use that as a pillar of our national identity. You can find all our Māori news stories on our website, rnz.co.nz, under the Te Ao Māori section. But for now, thanks for joining us. Ko Jamie Tahana Tine. Noho ora mai, tēnā koutou katoa.